Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to the passage from Acts 2, I want to read a couple of verses from 1 Chronicles chapter 25. The chronicler writes, Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And the number of those who performed their service was, and then it lists a bunch of names that I'm not going to pronounce. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit so that we may be a company of prophets, singing to one another with hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, singing to the world, bringing down kingdoms and fortresses, and advancing your kingdom in the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter explains what happened at Pentecost by quoting from the prophet Joel. You've just heard this read. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The Spirit doesn't just initiate the mission of the church on the day of Pentecost, but throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit intervenes to direct the mission of the church. It's by the Spirit that Peter discerns that Ananias and Sapphira are lying to him about what they received from the sale of their property. The Spirit tells Philip to go meet an Ethiopian eunuch out in the desert on a road, an isolated road in the middle of nowhere. And then as soon as he's baptized, the Ethiopian eunuch, he's snatched away by the Spirit to another place. The Spirit instructs the saints at Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas to go on a mission to the Gentiles, and the Spirit is the one that sends them out. The the decision of the Council of Jerusalem comes from the elders and the apostles, but also from the Spirit. It seemed good, they say, to the Holy Spirit and to us that these things should be so. The Spirit is Paul's travel agent. He tells Paul, he prevents Paul from going into certain places. He wants to go to Asia, and the Spirit keeps him from going into Asia. And then the Spirit sends him on to Jerusalem, even though he knows that imprisonment and arrest await him there. The Spirit doesn't just intervene in those kind of direct ways, but he intervenes through visions and dreams. Again and again, we have separated people brought together because they have both received a vision. Paul, of course, sees a vision on the road to Damascus, a vision of Jesus, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul would not be received into the church unless there was another vision, a vision that comes to Ananias, who is told, you should receive the persecutor Saul because he is going to do much for the kingdom. He is going to be apostle to the Gentiles. I have chosen him to do this. Two visions, one for Saul, one for Ananias, and you have the production of an apostle. And then Peter sees a vision, and 
Cornelius sees a vision. Cornelius sees a vision of angels telling him to go find Peter. Peter sees a vision showing him that all foods have been cleansed. It shows him that he can receive Gentiles and he can share a table with them. A vision in Joppa with Peter, a vision in Caesarea with Cornelius. And the two Jew and Gentile come together because they both received visions from the Spirit. Paul is frustrated because the Spirit keeps preventing him from going into Asia. But then he receives a vision at night of a man calling from Macedonia, calling him into Macedonia so that he could begin his mission there. When he goes to Corinth, he initially faces opposition from the Jews, but the Spirit comes to him in a vision by night and tells him he needs to stay put because he has a large people in that city. We often can find these kind of events, visions, dreams, the nudgings of the Spirit, to the first century. This was something that happened to the people in the book of Acts. Nothing like this happens to us. But that can't be right, can it? It can't be the case that the Spirit was involved, directly involved, giving visions and dreams to people in the first century and then left. Peter says, this is what Joel prophesied. The Spirit has been poured out. The Spirit has made a company of prophets fulfilling the dream of Moses that all of the people of God would be prophets. And it's still happening. It's been happening for 2,000 years. The same Spirit is with us. The Spirit of Pentecost is our Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We too have been given visions, dreams, and we are prophets in union with the prophet Jesus Christ. Of course, of course, what the Spirit did in the first century was unique. There's nobody writing scripture today as they did in the first century. There are miracles of tongues that aren't replicated in the centuries after. But we can't say that the Spirit has abandoned the church for 2,000 years. The Spirit just got us going and then left us on our own. The Spirit has always given dreams and visions and nudgings and inspirations. That's how the church grows. Our whole civilization is founded on a vision of Constantine. Constantine, I think, saw a solar phenomenon, interpreted it as, interpreted it as a, a, a message from the God of heaven, interpreted it as a message from the Christian God, and told his soldiers to paint crosses on their, on their shields as they went into battle. As he won the battle, that gave him control of the Western Empire, eventually the whole empire, and eventually Christendom and Western civilization. The whole of Western civilization depends on a vision of Constantine. Why do we spend millions and millions of dollars to send missionaries to the other side of the world? How did that come about? You say, well, Jesus told us to do it, but for centuries, Christians didn't do that. And then some madman had a dream of going to another country. He was reading the scriptures, the Spirit inspired him, and he had a vision of missionaries going to the four corners of the earth, and you have the birth of the modern missionary movement. Why does TPC exist? There's some visionary in the background. If you if you investigate with some of the older members, you can find out who that dreamer was who dreamed of a church like this. Why does any church exist? Why does any new thing happen? 
in the Christian church. The, the church has always been playing catch up with its dreamers and its visionaries and its prophets and its madmen. That's what's true in the first century. It's still true today. And it will be true until the end of the age. The Spirit has not and will not abandon His church. We should expect dreamers. We should expect visionaries. We should expect prophets urging the church on to new things as the Lord expands His kingdom throughout the world. But of course, it's not just the visionaries and the founders and the dreamers who receive the Spirit. This is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet. I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all flesh. All flesh. Every one of you has received the Spirit. These promises are for each of you. We are a company of priests. We are a priesthood. We are a gathering of kings and queens. We are a band of prophets in the Spirit. That's what Peter says. And if the Spirit hasn't abandoned us, then that's what we still are. You may be thinking, well, I'm no, I'm no prophet, nor son of a prophet. I've never seen a vision. I've never had a dream that came true. I've never predicted the future. We need to step back and think about what it means to be a prophet in Scripture. A prophet is fundamentally somebody who has access to the council, the C-O-U-N-C-I-L, the council, the courtroom of God. A true prophet is somebody who can go into the courtroom of God, listen to the deliberations, listen to the Lord's judgments and his pronouncements, and then having heard those judgments and pronouncements, he takes them out to the people. Jeremiah condemns false prophets because they speak in the Lord's name, but they've never been in the counsel of the Lord. Jeremiah 23. The Lord says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Who has stood in the counsel of Yahweh that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to Yahweh's word and listened? A prophet is somebody who can enter into the presence of God, hear the deliberations of the court, and then deliver those deliberations and those judgments and those rulings to the people of God. That's what a prophet is. A prophet, a true prophet is like Micaiah. You remember Micaiah? The prophet at the end of 1 Kings. Ahab wants to go out to battle. He wants to take Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, with him. And he has his 400 court prophets, and they're all saying, yes, go up, go up. The Lord shall give it into the king's hand. Go up. And Jehoshaphat says, isn't isn't there a true prophet somewhere? These guys are all on your payroll. Isn't there somebody who will tell us the truth? And so they find Micaiah. And where does Micaiah get the truth that he tells? How does he know that the Lord has sent a lying, deceiving spirit into the mouths of Ahab's prophets? It's because he's been in a different court. He's standing before two kings. But he said, I've been in a different courtroom. I've seen another king, the Lord, high and lifted up, all his myriads and myriads of spirits gathered around him, and I listened to what was happening in the court. The Lord made a decision, and now I'm announcing that. I'm just I'm just passing on. I'm just reporting. I'm a court reporter. I'm just passing on what I heard in the court. That's what a prophet is. 
Somebody who has access to the counsel of the Lord, who hears the word of the Lord and delivers it to the people. But a, a, a prophet is also somebody who has the privilege of the floor in the court of the Lord, who can speak in the counsel of the Lord and pass on his advice to the Lord. Abraham is the first prophet in the Bible. Genesis 20 tells us Abraham was a prophet. And in the context, it's about intercession. Abraham is a prophet and therefore he will intercede, who will pray for you. But even before that, we've seen Abraham functioning as a prophet. The Lord informs Abraham, tells him a secret. He can't withhold secrets from his prophets. He tells Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom. And what does Abraham do? Well, too bad for Sodom. No. Abraham talks back. Abraham advises the Lord, the judge of all the earth ought to do right. You shouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there are 50, if there are 40, if there are 20, if there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, don't destroy it. And the Lord agrees. Abraham negotiates the Lord down from 50 to 10. He's functioning as a prophet. Moses is a prophet. After the sin of the golden calf, the Lord wants to destroy Israel and start all over. He wants Moses to be the new Abraham and start a new people that he's going to take on into the land. And Moses says, don't do that. Then the nations will hear that you couldn't bring your people out of Egypt and take them all the way to the promised land. Your reputation is at stake. Don't do that. And the Lord doesn't do it. Amos is a prophet. The Lord shows him a vision of locusts invading the land of Israel. And Amos doesn't say, the Lord's will be done. He says, the Lord's will be changed. Lord, don't do that, because Jacob is small. And we're told in Amos 7 that the Lord changed his mind because of what the prophet said to him. Amos sees a vision of fire consuming Israel. And again, he doesn't keep silent. He doesn't just roll over and let it happen. He doesn't just submit to the will of God. He talks back. Lord, Jacob is small. Don't let this happen. And the Lord changed his mind again. This too shall not be, the Lord says. That's what a prophet does. He hears the word of the Lord and delivers it to the people. And he can intercede before the Lord and give his advice. He's a trusted advisor in the court of the Lord. Well, that probably just shifts your objection to be called, being called a prophet. You haven't ever foretold the future, but you've also never been in the court of the Lord. <clears throat> you've never seen a vision like Micaiah. The Lord has never disclosed to you what's going to happen in the future, and then you argue with him, and he changes his mind. That's never happened to you. Have you ever stood in the court of the Lord? Where do you think you are today? Right now. The judge of all the earth is here now. He's given you his spirit so that you might prophesy. What do you think we're here for? We're gathering our advice and in our prayers and in our songs We are presenting those petitions before the judge of all the earth. 
Have you never heard what the Lord pronounces in the Council of the Lord? Sure you do. Every single week. The judgments of the Lord are pronounced from this pulpit every single week. And then you go out to share those pronouncements with the world because you're a prophet. And this is a gathering of prophets in the presence of the Lord. You are in the council chamber of God right now. And in the spirit, you're receiving the word of the Lord to share with the world outside. You're here in order to present your petitions, to persuade God to keep his command, uh, to keep his promises. That's what a prophet does, and that's who you are. Now, of course, there are certain people who are more mature as prophets than others. There's some people who have walked with God so long and so intimately that they seem to know what he's going to do next. They can anticipate his next move. Have you ever been around a person whose every prayer seems to come to pass? No matter how outlandish, every single one of his prayers the Lord answers affirmatively. That's a mature prophet. That's what you're dealing with. Somebody who who the Lord listens to. Somebody from whom the Lord takes advice. Somebody who's walked with God, who's listened to his word, who's spent a life in prayer, and so the Lord is ready to hear him, who's spent a life in obedience listening to the word of the Lord so the Lord is willing to listen to him. That's what a mature prophet, that's what should be our aspiration. That's what we should want to do. We should want to end life in that kind of condition where we know the, we know the Lord so well, we know what he's going to do next. We know the word of the Lord so well, we don't have to think twice about how, what to speak in particular situations. It just comes to us because the spirit has put the word on our hearts. We want the Lord to listen to us, don't we? We want to mature as prophets. But whether we're mature or not, we're prophets. We've received the spirit of Pentecost, and therefore we will prophesy. And finally, to get to the point of the sermon, after that lengthy introduction, we're prophets because we sing. We're prophets because we sing. When we sing together, we're offering a sacrifice of praise. We're priests. When we sing together, we are preparing ourselves for battle. And we are fighting battles because we are taking on the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We're taking on the demons when we sing. And when we sing together, we're a choir of prophets prophesying. Throughout scripture, prophets sing their prophecies. Saul, on his way to become, to be anointed as king, meets a company of prophets and he is gripped by the spirit and he begins to prophesy. But those prophets have flutes, tambourines, a lyre. They're not, they're not traveling along talking to each other. They're traveling along singing. And when the spirit fills Saul, he begins to sing along with them. Prophesying and singing are the same in that passage. When Elisha wants to prophesy, Elisha is out with the two kings, another story of the dynasty of Ahab. Jehoshaphat is out there, and one of the the sons of Ahab is out going, going off to battle against the Moabites. And they don't really prepare for the battle. They get out in the middle of the wilderness. They don't have any water. 
And Elisha is out there with them. What's he doing there? I don't know. But Elisha is there. He said, Elisha, can you help us? And he says, bring me a minstrel. And when the minstrel comes, Elisha begins to prophesy. The music inspires and awakens prophecy. And I imagine that Elisha sang, chanted his prophecy. The passage I read in First Chronicles shows us that even when song gets institutionalized and regularized in the temple, it's described as prophesying. David and the commanders of the army gathered the Levites together so that they can prophesy with lyres and harps and trumpets and other instruments. They're singing and prophesying. I think this is Paul, what Paul has in mind. This is why Paul can talk about uh, tongues and prophecy using musical analogies. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 13. If we have not love, then our tongues are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Not pleasant sound, not harmonious sound, but cacophony. Just noise if we don't have love. And in the following chapter, when he's talking about tongues, he says tongues have to be interpreted. And if they're not interpreted, it's like playing a musical instrument and blurring the notes together, not playing distinct notes. If a bugler wants to call the troops to battle, he has to blow the notes of an alarm to gather the troops and to send them out to battle. He needs to have distinct notes because the music is supposed to communicate something. And it communicates a command. The blaring of the trumpet calls the army together so that they go out, can go out to battle. And if the notes are indistinct, if the notes are smushed together, then there is no message. And so it is with tongues without interpretation. Music communicates, Paul assumes. Music is supposed to send messages. And elsewhere, Paul talks about our singing together as a way of sending messages to one another. When we're filled with the Spirit, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Yes. But Paul says we sing psalms, spiritual, uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. We're not just singing to God. We're singing to each other. We're prophesying to each other as we sing together. We're building each other up in the word. We're encouraging one another to love and good works as we sing together. Because we're prophesying to one another. But our prophesying in song is not just a message to one another. It's a message to the world. Prophetic speech is speech that has divine power. God creates by speaking. God destroys by speaking. And then he tells Jeremiah, I'm going to put my words in your mouth, my words that create and destroy, so that your words will create and destroy. So that your words will pluck out and tear down. So that your words will plant and build. Prophetic words are words that take down worlds, and build new worlds. This isn't imaginary. Prophets actually imagine a future, a new future. They imagine a world that hasn't existed, and then people begin to pursue that non-existent world, and it comes to be. And our singing is like that. Our singing has the divine power to root up 
and to plant, to tear down and to build. And again, this isn't fantasy. Think about the effect that music has had on our culture over the past 60 years. Think about radically transformed our culture has been by music, by waves of different styles of music. Generations are divided over music. Sexual morals have changed partly because of the music that we listen to and sing and the kinds of things we get used to listening to and singing. Music can provoke revolutions. Music has that prophetic power in general. And our music, the song of the church, is the song of the prophets. We're singing together as prophets to pluck up and to plant, to tear down and to build. Our choir, not just the people who are in the choir, this whole company of singers, is a choir of prophets, and the choir of prophets directs the history of nations. We sing nations down. We sing to build up nations. And part of the reason why our singing, why our prophesying in song has such power is because we are singing in the counsel of the Lord, and he recognizes us as prophets, as trusted advisors. And so we call on God to judge the nations, and he does. We call on him to render recompense to the proud, and he does. We call on him to save his people and to save his beloved and to bless his inheritance, and he does. He takes our counsel. He takes our advice. And our singing, our prophetic singing, is powerful also because we are, in fact, singing the future. You think about this as you're singing today. I was glancing through the hymns, and there are a few points where this was obvious. Where we're singing about things and celebrating things and giving thanks for things that haven't happened yet. We give thanks for things as if they already were when they, in fact, aren't. We're singing things that God has promised and that are so certain and sure that we can give thanks to him now for things that are going to happen in the future. The Lord has not cast down the proud. Michael reminded us of the news and the upcoming election, full of proud people. The Lord has not cast down the proud. But we sing as if the Lord has cast down the proud. We sing that victory that's still a future victory. Jesus hasn't crushed the nations with his rod of iron. The kingdoms of this world have not become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, or at least they don't acknowledge it yet. The earth is not full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we sing all of these things and celebrate them and praise the Lord for all these things that are yet future. And by singing that future, we begin to inhabit the future that is still to come. We share the triumph that is still beyond us. That future becomes present in our singing. And not just the near future or some historical triumph, but the ultimate future becomes present when we sing. The destiny of the world is for every created thing everything, to be united in praise. That's where everything is heading. 
to a wedding feast that's full of song. And every week, we embody that future. Not in some kind of abstract way, but just by singing together, the future of the world is presented here in the present. And we begin to share, we do share, by the power of the Spirit in the end of all things. And we begin to live and move and have our being in the future that God has promised. We are prophetic singers, singing the future, singing the ultimate future, so that that future can become real for us now, as we sing, as we sing as the Lord's prophets. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.